Combo Nation, what up, what up, what up everyone? Welcome to Combo's Court and I am Combo. If you enjoyed the show, rate it, review it, subscribe it, share it, all that good stuff. Today's show, Paul Nepper, author of The Knicks of the 90s, joins in to talk New York Knicks, 90s basketball, and more. You could find Paul on Twitter at Paulie Nep, that's P-A-U-L-I-E-K-N-E-P. You know you can find me on Instagram at 12combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Nepper, author of The Knicks of the 90s. Welcome to Combo's Court. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. You know, it's a topic I actually know a little bit about. I was real young, but my father was a, a big Knicks fan uh, growing up. As of right now, I'm a fan of no team. I like to stay unbiased. But as a kid, I was a big fan of the Bulls, Michael Jordan, even though I was from New York. But I knew so much about the Knicks because, you know, back then, regional TV, that's the team I saw so much of. And my father used to take me to Knicks games. I got some great stories about that. Maybe we could get into that later. Maybe we can't. But what was your reasoning for writing this book? And how much, how much of a challenge was it? Uh, well, like you, growing up, I grew up in New York. Um, I grew up a huge fan of those Knicks teams. So it was very much a, a passion project for me. And uh, not just me. You know, I so many, as you know, so many people, so many New Yorkers are so passionate about those teams. Yeah. And of course, the last uh, couple of decades have been so miserable for Nick fans. 100%. So I think uh, I think that the, the nostalgia for those teams has, has only grown because the present has been so bleak. And um, so I thought this was something that would really appeal to a lot of people. And as to the challenges, yeah, it's hard. I know, you know, it's my first book. Um, it's uh, it's it's a massive project. It took me over two years Um Tons and tons of research from newspaper articles to reading books to listening to podcasts to, you know, speaking to close to 100 sources and, and just incorporating all that information. It was a lot, but it was fun. You told me you learned a little bit from my Larry Johnson podcast. What did you grab from there, man? What did you grab from that from that pod? <laughs> well, I got some good stuff on the whole grandmama stuff. Yeah, um, that was where, interesting. Where that you, was an interesting time. Origins. That was an interesting time because people were really yeah. talking about that commercial, you know? Oh, yeah, it was huge because back then there weren't a lot of people that had, first of all, there weren't a lot of people that had their own sneaker deals then, not nearly as many as now. Right. Um, so that was a big deal in and of itself. And then and then it, the the ad campaign was was really, it was a huge hit. Yeah. I. Th- it's interesting. Like you had that, you had Little Penny. They don't really uh, do those funny campaigns like they used to, man. They should, they should go back no, to some of don't. that. I agree, man. There was a good, uh, there was a good David Robinson one too, Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. That was yeah. pretty good. But yeah, you're right. They don't, they don't really have those, those funny ones anymore. Most definitely, most definitely. Um, give me a good Pat Riley story. I mean, I know you did a lot of research. Pat Riley is such a, he's an interesting character, man. And did he have all that Miami Heat going on now back then, like with the, 
with the weight and the testing. Uh, what did the players say about Pat as a coach and any interesting Pat Riley stories? Yeah, I mean, Pat Riley was he was no nonsense, you know, from day one for going back to his Laker days. He was very um, extremely prepared, extremely detail oriented um, and incredibly disciplined. He was incredibly disciplined himself and he expected that from his players. Um, there are a lot of good stories in the book. So Riley was, you know, people, a lot of people have this, this perception about basketball coaches that it's kind of, it's like, it's like the movie Hoosiers or something where before every, uh, before every game, the coach stands up and gives this, you know, riveting speech and inspiring words and this and that. And, but you know, you're a ball player. The truth is if you do that 82 times over a season, nobody's listening, right? They're tuning you out. They've had enough. Oh, definitely. And they're just, you have you really have to pick your spots for that kind of stuff, but Riley did that. And Doc Rivers said that listening to Riley speak was like listening to Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or something. And it was before every game he would give a long. He had notes and he would give a long, riveting speech before every game. Sometimes he did symbolic gestures. Um, it might be a video. He like one game before one game he showed a video of. Uh, like the whole during warmups, he was going on and on to the team about how they were soft. They were soft. They weren't playing tough enough. And then he showed a video. Of, then he showed a video of like, instead of giving a speech, he showed like a, a 10 minute video of just like violent images, like Rams butting heads and knockout punches in boxing and car crashes, just violence. Um, but my favorite one was one, one time before a game, he, he went on and on about trust, how you have to trust your teammates and, trust your coaches and it's all about trust and then there was a big bucket of ice water and he dumps his head he submerged his head in the ice water and for a long time where and everyone's like what's he doing and then like holy holy cow like he's not taking his head out finally assistant coach dick harder came and pulled riley's head out of the ice water and riley's got like you know his eyes are tearing he's got like snot all over his face he was in there for a long time and he, he catches his breath and he says to them he said i trust I, I i trust you and i trusted that someone would come and save me and that yeah, was just man. his that was riley's way one like he's he did some crazy things like that to to prove his points it's interesting because i would never think of the knicks as a team playing soft and you would have to focus on that like you know what I mean? Like they never played soft. Like from what I remember, it was the total opposite. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. No, they were known for their toughness, but he, 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 he never, he, he used to use the word slippage. He didn't like any slippage, whether it be in their effort or their yeah. toughness or their focus. And so if he felt there was any kind of slippage at all, he'd reinforce the point. You got to be tougher. You got to be play harder. You got to be more focused. Yeah, I like it. I guess they doubled down on what they were already good at, kind of like what Houston did this year, even though that didn't turn out too well because they, they ran into the Lakers, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. All right. So, I mean, there's so many interesting role players during that time that I remember. X-Men, Mason, Derek Harper, John Starks was an interesting character. What are some of the greatest stories you heard about all of those guys and who interested you the most out of all those role players? And I'm missing so many. I mean, there was a lot of interesting characters. They had obviously Oakley as well. But uh, anything that really sticks out to you from your book? Yeah, uh, I, to me, uh, you're right. I mean, that was, you know, when I was thinking about writing the book, I was like, is, is, would this make a good book? And one of the things that convinced me that it would would be the characters, right? So many that you named and in, in, later, in the later 90s, you, get, you have Sprewell with his whole backstory. You have guys like, like Larry Johnson, yeah. Charlie Ward, 
was a Heisman Trophy winner who went on to be a starting point guard. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. The guy that got me the most was Oakley. Um, and Oakley, he's a really complex, unique guy. I, you know, just about everybody I spoke to had an Oakley story. You know, it got to the point where I'd start talking to people and say, all right, give me your favorite Oakley story. Um, and 70% of those stories were about how tough he is, just what a, you know, how other players were afraid of him and he, and instances where he beat people up before games and on team flight, got in a fight on a team flight. Um, but then like 30% of the stories were about what a sweetheart he was. And a number of people use the word sweetheart. He's actually like a very sensitive, caring guy. He'll do anything for a teammate. Um, uh, this guy, Steve Masiello, who's now the head coach at Manhattan College, was a, a ball boy for the Knicks back then. I didn't know. I mean, I, and, I, knew, um, I, knew he, I knew he was a coach for Manhattan College. I didn't know he was a ball boy, though. Yeah, like late 80s, about. early he's, 90s. He's the, he's the Patino guy. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, late 80s, early 90s, he was, uh, he was a ball boy for the Knicks. Wow, okay. And um, he was telling me, so like his, for his eighth grade dance, Oakley gave, Oakley gave Masiello his car and a driver to take him to his eighth grade dance which wow. made him obviously the coolest kid in school. Um, but he did a lot of stuff like that, just like very thoughtful, uh, kind gestures to to teammates and people who work for the organization and stuff like that, which I found really touching. And, and, and then so you'd hear those stories and then you hear about him, you know, threatening somebody's life in the next story. It was, it's, it was wild. Yeah, he actually had a car wash where I grew up in Riverdale, which is pretty interesting. Did you, That's did you right. remember that? Yeah, yeah. I think he still has one somewhere. I don't know if he still owns it, but it was like my mom. I think there is. I think there is one left. Yeah, I think there is one left. I'm not yeah. sure where it is. Yeah, I think so. I heard you in a podcast recently, and you said the role player. Well, I don't even know if he was a role player. He was. He was a good. He was a great player. Anthony Mason interests you the most, right? Why was that? Yeah, Mason too. Yeah, Mason was great. Um, similar to Oak, uh, in that sense. And that Mason was, uh, also a really tough guy with a really big heart. Um, and there's a story I love with him, uh, again, again, Masiello told me this. Um, he was great. The ball boys are great. I talked to a few ball boys. They're great because they see everything, you know, the ball yeah, yeah. boys know all. Um, <laughs> and well, and also he's, he's probably a great, he's also probably a great communicator at, at this point, just being a head coach of a college team. You know what I mean? Like the storytelling. Exactly. So much. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And especially, you know, some of the some of the bigger name guys tend to be a little more a little more guarded or a little more jaded from doing so many interviews. Some of the lesser known guys, you know, might aren't as accustomed to doing them all the time and maybe more open. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what was it about Mason that really intrigued you? Like what was what was his personality like, according to the guys? And also rest in peace, man. Uh, his son actually played ball, at, for, you know, for St. John's. But what it, what kind of stories did you hear about him? So Mace was, um, I don't want to use the word miserable, but he, he was a curmudgeon. Mace always was always unhappy about something, um, yeah, okay. usually basketball related. So Mace was the kind of guy who, you know, he could, he could score 30 points, 12 rebounds, eight assists in 44 minutes. And he'd be pissed off that he was sat, he had to sit for, for those four minutes, or he'd be pissed off about a, a foul, uh, you know, that, a foul should have been called on him in the second quarter of, you know, of a game that the Knicks won by 30 points. Right. Um, so he was, he was always kind of angry about something and, and that took its toll in the locker room, I think a little bit. Um, but also really uh, a really caring, he was a mama's boy. 
It's very funny. He was a mama's boy. He talked about his mom. His mom came to every game. He talked about her a lot. He drove her home to White Plains after every game. And then he'd drive back to Manhattan to go out with his friends. And then this and then this story I was going to say about Masiello. So it's it's one of it's one of Mason's first games with the Knicks. It's uh, right before tip off. And he takes a piece of paper, gives it to Masiello. And he says, this is my mother's phone number. Please call her. Tell her I love her. And I wish you were here. And wow. it's just such a, like a tender moment. But what was interesting about him was that his jump shot was so interesting. Like, if you ever seen him shoot in person, he had a crazy hitch on his jump shot. And he was also like a point forward before that was really like a thing. Like, he could really yeah. handle the basketball for his size. Yeah. I mean, I, it might be a little extreme, but Riley, Riley years ago compared him to LeBron. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, Obviously, no, it wasn't I, LeBron, but for his, for his ability to – to play all over the court and to defend multiple positions. And I would and say kind of like, kind of like a Draymond in a way, like yeah. you push a forward that could push in transition, you know? Yeah, exactly. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I had to ask you about this because I like to talk about trends and three point lines and how the game is played today in the mid nineties. I mean, they moved the three point line in, right? Like, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. What effect do you feel that had on the game and for the Knicks as well? Well, they moved it in for a little while, and then they moved it back. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting, right? Because it 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 didn't the three pointing didn't really take off the way you would expect in retrospect. Because obviously, like about ten years after that, it really fifteen years after that, it really exploded. But when they moved it in, it didn't it didn't explode. The three point shooting didn't explode. In fact, but people complained that it actually hurt spacing a little bit. Yeah, um, and that was a problem. I think I don't know if that affected the Knicks specifically, but I think in general it kind of clogged things up a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. They thought it would increase scoring, but it really didn't. <laughs> like I yeah. think I think scoring kept going down. I think scoring kept going yeah. down. All right. Uh, current Knicks situation. Current Knicks situation. What do you feel the Tibbs hiring means for the New York Knicks? Uh, I like the Tibbs hiring. Tibbs, uh, of course, Tibbs was an assistant with the Knicks in, in the late 90s. So um, he's cut from that old school. I think Tibbs brings, um, he brings some credibility for one, which they, they've kind of lacked. Um, but I, I, I think he's a teacher. I think, the, I, think he's, I think he'll be good for the young players. I think they'll grow and develop. And I think the Knicks will play hard. And yeah. frankly, that's a start right now. You know, yeah. just come out and play hard and play competitive basketball every night would be really nice. Most definitely. I mean, you pay close attention to the Knicks. Which young players do you like there? Like, do you see them being able to be a productive or even star player on a, I mean, I know this is far-fetched, a championship level team. <laughs> Very far-fetched. But, but that's how you have to think, right? When you're building 100%. a team, when you're starting, like, all right, who, who are our building blocks? What do we have here that we can work with? Um, I'm actually a big RJ Barrett fan. Uh, I think he, um, I think it was very difficult to judge him based on last year. There were, you know, there was a coaching change. There was a lot of turmoil. He had no shooting around him at all. Um, I, I look at him, I think best case scenario, he could be like a Jimmy Butler type. You know, I don't think he'll ever be a great shooter, but, um, he gets to the basket. He gets to the foul line. He's got a little bit of that dog in him. And I think, yeah. The, the different, and I'm not comparing him to Jimmy Butler. He's not Jimmy Butler right now. No, but, he, sure. but I see what you're saying because he has that kind of will. Like you could tell he wants to be good. Yeah. And he's just, he's tough. Like, you know, he's tough. But the, if you look, I mean, one difference right now, Jimmy Butler, look at the shooters he had around him. 
this year. You know, yeah. with Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, he had guys that really spread the floor and gave him the space to get to the basket. And the Knicks really had just about the worst spacing in the league last year. And so I think, um, and Barrett's very young. So I like him a lot. Um, I like Mitch Robinson. I, I think Nick fans overrate him a little bit um, only because, you know, in today's NBA, is the, I, I, it's like the big man has been devalued to an extent. And it's almost like either you have tremendous skill, like a Joel Embiid or a Nikola Jokic, or you're, or you're a shot blocker slash rim runner, you know? And, yeah. and so is that really worth a Big maximum money. salary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might be able to get that for less. Like, I think that happened with Clint. He kind of got in at the right time where people didn't really realize that yet, where you could just, you don't have to pay a rim running big. Like, good for him. You know, I'm happy for him. But I think there'll be less of that going forward, paying guys like that. I know? agree. I think so. Um, so that and the other young guys, uh, I'm not a Kevin Knox fan. I, I, I think he's soft. Um, and I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I don't think it's time to write off, write him off yet. I think he's another guy. It's, there's been so much turnover and turmoil. It's hard to judge those guys. And it's, and it's interesting. It's interesting because you look at the skill set and you would think he could be a good NBA player. Like yeah, could slide yeah. his feet, could hit threes. He just hasn't done any of that at a high level yet. Yeah. And, uh, and I like I like Neil Aquino. I, he's getting better and better. It's you yeah. know people were upset with with I, you know I I guess want him to be a superstar. Obviously you, he's not. Do you feel like the he, do you feel the opinions on him are kind of polarizing? Because I feel like oh a lot yeah of, it's crazy yeah it's crazy yeah. New Yorkers are like they're Nick fans that think you know I don't, he's like a god like the, you know the French <laughs> prince or whatever and there and there and there are Nick fans that think he's absolute garbage and the truth is he's somewhere in between. I think he could be. You know, I think he could be a, a role player. I think he could be a rotation guy on a really good team. Yeah. So let's finish off with a little Pat Ewing talk, and then we'll discuss a little bit more about your book, and then we'll get you out of here. You're a busy guy. You're author. You're author. You're a busy guy, Paul. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so Pat Ewing, I mean, I know there was times where there was trade talk, um, and teams were skeptical if he was a franchise player. To me personally, growing up in New York, there's no doubt that Patrick Ewing was a franchise player because just because you don't win a championship doesn't mean you're not a franchise player. Like, look at Reggie Miller. Look at Carl Malone. This guy was such a floor raiser. I mean, your team was a championship contender because you had this guy. Like, we like all the role players they had, but the reason why they were a championship contender for so many years, even though they didn't win it, was because of Patrick Ewing. What do you feel about Patrick's? career and were there any trades that you found interesting that never really came to fruition um i think patrick i i you know i he's he he has to be the most underappreciated superstar in new york sports history that's what i believe i mean i think you know look he, yeah he what he wasn't michael jordan he wasn't akeem olajuwon no nope. but he was a great great player and you know as you alluded to he had he, people talk about all those role players they were role players there's yeah. no other Hall of – he never played within a Hall of Famer. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, he, he just didn't. And, we, you know, you look at all the, all, all the great players now. I mean, LeBron didn't win without another Hall of Famer. Um, and, and you need, you know, you need a, two or three guys like that to win a championship. So I think he gets a bit of a raw deal with that. And I don't know, I think part of it with him was the, the expectations were so high when he came in, so high. Um, you know, I, you know – 
people that weren't around then don't know. I mean, I was very young myself, but he was considered the biggest prospect to come in the league since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And people thought he was going to be the next Bill Russell. People thought he was going to win multiple championships, not one, not two, like many. Yeah. And, and so he came in with that kind of, that kind of expectation. I think that hurt him, you know, you know it's, no it's, it's, his it's, own. I think that hurt it, hurt him. I, I think, I think something that's interesting is that he was such a crazy athlete at Georgetown and then he became in the NBA. People don't realize it now because all the bigs are stretch bigs that can shoot. Like he was one of the better shooting centers ever, especially from the mid range. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting how much his game changed from Georgetown throughout his career, you know? Yeah. Yes. I, you asked something else. There was another part of that question. Yeah. So any, 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 any interesting oh, trades, trades yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that actually didn't come to fruition that were, were yeah, really no, the biggest, so, so, so really it was 1991 where he was really on the market. Um, wow. That's, you know, again, that's pretty early. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So he came in, he came in in 85 and, um, you know, like his first six years in the league, he, he went through five different coaches, three different general managers, tons of different players. They just it, it was, wasn't quite as bad as it is now, but that kind of changeover and, and inconsistency. Um, and he wasn't happy there and wa- he was wanted out. He was kind of trying to force his way out. And so the, the Knicks explored it a little. Um, the most interesting deal that I heard, ultimately, they they, they weren't. They didn't think any of the offers were quite good enough. Um, Dave Chackets, who was the president of the team at the time, told me he flew down to San Antonio and talked to Red McCombs, who was the, the Spurs owner, and he offered Red McCombs Patrick Ewing and $10 million for David Robinson. And this was $10 million doesn't sound much like much now, but in 1991, for a small market team, $10 million was actually a lot of money. Um, Wait. So was that was that pre David Robinson MVP or post? Pre pre MVP. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean that's interesting. and uh, and the Spurs thought about it for for a few days and ultimately turned him down. That's interesting because they could have. I think it is easier to build around David Robinson, right? Because when you have a Patrick Ewing, you got to revolve everything around that guy. You know, four out, one in. Yeah. The Akeem, the Akeem yeah. thing. You know what I mean? The right, Akeem right, type right. situation. Right. Uh, so yeah, just tell us a little bit more about your book, where they could find it and, you know, anything you'd like to share where they could find you on social media, all that great stuff. Yeah. So my book, uh, you know, as, as I said before, I think a lot of what it drives it is the characters. There's a lot of great characters, um, and a lot of drama. Uh, there's, there's personality conflicts. There are physical conflicts, uh, Wow. As I'm sure you remember, Andrew, lots of brawls, right? And those 90s Knicks. Van, Gundy's, Van, Gundy, Van Gundy's a great memory. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Uh, lots, lots of brawls. Intense rivalries um, with the Bulls in the early 90s, with, with Reggie and the Pacers, with the Heat. Um, so there's a lot of drama in it. And um, you can find my book at, uh, you know, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, you know, really all the places you buy books. Um, that's it. You can, you can follow me on social media at, at Pauli Nep, P-A-U-L-I-E-K-N-E-P on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's the deal with the book. All right. I got to ask you one last thing, actually. It just popped into my head. Um, yeah. What, any stories about John Starks, like mentality going into those games against the Bulls? 
because man, he he tried so hard, but it just it just wasn't enough, you know. Starks was a really intense. I mean, he was a really intense guy. Like I, was, I felt like he felt like he could really stop MJ, like in his mind, but it just didn't yeah. work out that way. Yeah, it's uh, no, you know, it, it's I I. I talk to a lot of guys on other teams to try and get perspective. You know, I talked to, for example, Bill Cartwright and Will Purdue from the Bulls. And I remember Purdue told me the thing that they, you know, I asked them, I was like, did you consider the Knicks a real threat? Were you, were you really worried about them? Because, you know, you guys were the champs and, or were they just a tough team you had to get through? And he said, no, we were worried. Were they a real threat? And he said, the reason was Riley convinced those guys that they could beat us. And they did, you know, those, they did. I, the one thing Starks talked to me about was the hatred. You could still, you know, it's 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 uh, 25 whatever years later, you could still hear it in his voice. He's like, I hated those guys. I hated them so much. And he tried. And I think he tried. Knicks- he tried so. I I don't think I've ever seen a player try that hard. Like it was like a Pat Beverly type of thing. He tried yeah. so hard, you know. And that's why New York. And that's why New Yorkers love him so much. John Starks shot two for 18 in game seven of the 1994 NBA finals. Okay. He had the one of the worst game seven finals performances ever. And he is absolutely adored by the fan base, which is pretty remarkable, but he's loved because he, he gave every, every ounce, everything he had, he left it on the floor. Most definitely, man. Great memories. Great memories. I, I, I gotta be honest with, with you. I wasn't a New York Knicks fan. My dad was, and uh, rest in peace to my dad uh, before he passed. He used to tell me, the Knicks are always rebuilding. The Knicks are always rebuilding. Like that, that's all you would say. I'm like, dad, they're rebuilding. He's like, they're always rebuilding. But yeah. uh, rest in peace to him. And Paul, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, really appreciate it. Miss my dad. But really thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you're always welcome back and talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you for tuning in to Combos Court and big shouts to Paul for joining in. We appreciate you. Let me know how you feel about the show by dropping a comment right on your Apple Podcasts app. Rate and review wherever you listen to Combos Court and be on the lookout for episode 213. Combo out.